All right, James chapter 5, verse 1. So when Carrie and I went off to seminary, we went to seminary. We'd been married exactly a year. In fact, I think we moved on our first anniversary. And um, so we moved into these little 600-foot, square-foot duplexes alongside other seminary students and their wives. And so y'all may know this already, but... Carrie grew up in some pretty privileged circumstances. She didn't have a butler or anything like that, but you know, she she came from a, a, a nice background. I mean, I, I was out of my league in, in many many areas, but part of that meant that you know my side of the family for wedding gifts got us things like Tupperware, and her side of the family got her things like Waterford Crystal Goblet. You know, that that's kind of the difference. And so, what it meant was when we move into these little six hundred square foot duplex. We had all this fancy stuff and nice furniture. And I mean, and so our new friends would come over and see us and I'd feel like I had to explain, oh, no, we didn't buy this. This was a gift. You know, Carrie's, you know, side of the family, they're well off, but you know, we don't, we don't have that much. Oh, that, that couch. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for telling me it's a nice couch, but I got it on sale. Okay. In fact, that table, Somebody was practically throwing it away. So we got it for almost nothing. And, and one day, Carrie finally said, why do you do that? Why do you feel like you have to explain away all this stuff? I said, well, I don't want them to think we're you know, rich and snobby. And I never really got over that. Um, but it, it, it makes me think about what we're about to read, that there is a sort of scandal to wealth. Now, there's two different ways that Christians react to wealth. On the one hand, there's that brand of Christianity, if you can call it that, that sees all wealth as a sign of God's blessing and therefore as a sign that you're doing things right. So if your bottom line is strong and if you're, you're healthy and if you're, you're able to uh, enjoy the good life, then that means you're living righteously. And of course, the opposite is also true. If you're struggling financially, well, it must be because of something you did. Now, obviously, that's not that's not scripturally sound. On the other hand, there is a reaction to that that says all riches are poisonous to the soul. Therefore, if you want to be really righteous, you're going to give up all wealth. And this is why in some segments of the church, there are vows of poverty, for instance. Oh, those are the people that really love the Lord because they've renounced all earthly possessions to serve him. So what is the truth? What is, what is the way to go? So let me just real quick before we get into this actual passage, just sort of give a quick rundown on the different things the Bible says about wealth. And when I say wealth, that's my term for the stuff you own. So in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we do see some of God's servants being what we would call wealthy. Of course, the biggest example is Solomon. Long, long descriptions of the splendor in which he lived. Uh, but Abraham. Abraham and Sarah were well off for their time, had servants, had basically a private army. Uh, many Old Testament passages, especially in Proverbs, promise that there will be blessings for hard work, for living with wisdom. If you do these things, then it will go well for you. Okay. In the New Testament, we see there are certain women of means who provided the funds for Jesus's ministry, basically to take care of them. Mary Magdalene was one of them. 
and, and in the book of Acts, we see there were well-off Christians. Most Christians weren't well-off, but those who were, their generosity was very important in helping the early church do ministry. Barnabas is a perfect example as we see him take the, the family land, sell it, and give it to the apostles to be distributed to the poor. Note, however, in those passages, the focus is never on, here's how they got rich. So if you want to get rich, do what Barnabas did, or do what Mary Magdalene did. That's never the focus. The focus is instead on, hey, God blessed them. See what they did with that blessing. See how they used it to the glory of God. And then there's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9.11. He says, you will be made rich in every way, so that in every way you can be generous. People love to quote the first part of that. You will be made rich in every way. They don't pay attention to the rest where it says, God is going to bless you so you can be a blessing. Okay, Rich in every way also doesn't necessarily mean financially. So you can't, you can't take, you should not take scripture out of context to make it say what it doesn't mean. Now on the flip side, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, they often hammered on wealthy people uh, who were abusing the poor. Amos is the number one example. Here's Amos, the, the prophet from down south, the farmer and fig picker and shepherd who goes up north where things are prosperous, where it's booming, and he walks around uh, telling the, the Israelites that they're sinners, that, they're, that God is going to tear down their ivory mansions and throw out their, their, their couches and, and lead them off into destruction. Uh, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And it is noteworthy that when God chose to live on earth in human flesh, he didn't come as a king, he didn't come as a billionaire, he didn't come even as a middle class person. He came as, first of all, a blue collar lower class individual who then gave up that and became a homeless, unpaid preacher. So from a political perspective, and yes, I'm going to go here, there are Christians who believe that the Bible endorses socialism. I don't know any personally, but I know they exist. I've read some of their writings. The problem with the idea that the Bible endorses socialism is that it puts an unbiblical faith in humanity. Let me, let me explain what I mean. So if you believe that, okay, because the Bible teaches we should take care of the poor, therefore, the government should make sure that everyone has enough by taking from the rich and giving to the poor. What you're saying is, okay, there are certain people who are able to make decisions, who are able to look at, at you and me and say, okay, you've got too much. He has not enough. I'm going to take from you and give to him. There are certain people who have the wisdom to do that and the righteousness to do that without enriching themselves or without uh, using it to bless their friends and their neighbors and their political uh, allies. There, there are certain people that are righteous enough to do that without becoming corrupt. And the Bible clearly teaches that's not the case, that human beings are evil by nature. We're sinners. Nobody can bear that weight. And besides, even if you don't think that's applicable, the Bible commands us to be generous. It never commands anybody, any institution or any person to compel somebody else to be generous. You see what I mean? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus says, okay, you got to sell all you have, give to the poor. He doesn't say, hey, Peter, James, and John, go tackle him, take his money and give it to the poor. He doesn't go to the Pharisees and scribes and say, listen, you're his rulers. You make him give his money to the poor. He says to the man, you've got two choices. You can do what God wants you to do, 
And you can give your money to the poor, or you can continue to live in sin and be lost. Do you see the difference? So there's not a biblical warrant for socialism. On the other hand, many Christians, especially from our breed of Christianity, believe that the Bible teaches unregulated capitalism. So the government should never get involved in anything financial uh, because the free markets are the only righteous way. The free markets will, will solve out everything. But that's not biblical either. And let me explain why. So would you agree with me that scripture teaches that there are certain things that are evil and because those things are evil, we as Christians should, should uh, encourage or uh, pressure our government leaders to uphold those righteous standards. For instance, if we had a government that didn't punish murder, we would say, listen, murder is wrong. It's evil. You should punish murderers. Theft is wrong. Rape is wrong. Government should be involved in punishing those crimes and ridding us of those crimes. The Bible also speaks often about the abuses of those who have a lot against those who have little or nothing. That is a common theme in the scriptures. I mean, you would, if you haven't paid attention, you wouldn't, you'd be shocked how often that theme comes up. Therefore, we should also expect our governing authorities to punish those kinds of crimes. And that means certain kinds of government regulation. If there's a company that produces products that they know are harmful, a medication, for instance, that has harmful side effects, government should punish them for that. Not say, well, you know, we're not going to punish them because they produce jobs and they help the economy. Uh, if, if there's a, a company that mistreats its workers, well, the government should step in. So it's also not biblical to say, well, the, there should be no government regulation. What I'm trying to say is don't read your politics into the Bible. Let the Bible speak for itself. Okay? Some of you, I'm afraid that's all you're going to remember that I said tonight, whether you agree or disagree with it. But please come back to me. In comparison to the rest of the world, Let's be honest, because this is about what we're about to read is about rich people. In comparison to the rest of the world, everybody in this room is wealthy. If you lined up every human on earth in order of personal self-worth, right? How much, how much stuff they own, and you put the, the wealthiest person on this end and the poorest person on that end, everybody in this room, everybody in this church, probably everybody in this town would be on this end of the spectrum. So these words are for us. These words apply to us. It says in verse 1 of chapter 5, James 5. Now listen, and this is, by the way, ESV is what I'm reading out of, if you want to look up in your, uh, your Bible app. Now listen, you rich people. Actually, hang on. Did I bring the wrong Bible? Yes, I did. I brought the NIV. How did I do that? Goodness gracious. I lied. You can follow along. <laughs> I don't even know why I have this web. Okay. <sighs> I got started on that sentence and I knew that's not the ESV. Okay, here we go. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Weep and wail, you rich. This is, I find this interesting. The word that means wail. The Greek is pronounced this way. Ololuzo, it kind of sounds like wailing. Uh, and, and it's a term that it, it's sort of similar. It's a sort of similar message to what Jonah gave to Nineveh. 
You remember the story? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, didn't want to go. And God, of course, captured him through through a whale or or a big fish. And so Jonah's like, okay, I guess I'll go. And what is his message to the Ninevites? It's the most un-Joel Osteen message ever. It's, it's uh, you're all going to die, basically. You, you are all dead. Just give it up. You've got no hope. You're going to die. He doesn't give them any, okay, so this is therefore what you should do. And yet what happens? The Ninevites, against all expectations, repent. And God spares them to Jonah's extreme frustration. See, James is saying the same thing to us that Jonah said to Nineveh. He's trying to provoke the same response. Repent. Take a look at the way you are using these incredible resources that you've been blessed with and repent. Don't assume that because you're doing well, therefore the Lord approves of your life because those two things are not necessarily in agreement. Okay, verse two. Ah, you know what? I've got some, I've got, yeah, I've got the ESV written down on here. So there, now I'm back on the ESV. How about that? Okay, verse two. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. These are not verses that we put on mugs, right? And bumper stickers. James is being extremely blunt. When he talks about rotted and moth-eaten and corroded wealth, uh, it's God's way of saying, even what you thought was indestructible will be destroyed. There is no such thing as a, a bulletproof or fireproof fortune or empire. doesn't mean it's wrong to, to save and to invest wisely and try to leave your kids with something or even to save so that you don't, your kids don't have to take care of you when you're older. That, in fact, the book of Proverbs would endorse that kind of wisdom. But just understand that stuff can go away in an instant. And so what James is condemning is, an, is a lifestyle that's sort of the, the flip side, the exact opposite of what Jesus said in Matthew when he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves can't break up and steal. If you instead store up treasure for yourself, you're a fool. You're a fool. It's like, it's like filling your house with TNT and saying, well, you know, I, 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 just, I just like collecting all this dynamite. I, I like collecting all this nitroglycerin. I like collecting all this C4. Eventually, sooner or later, what you're storing up will destroy you. And that's the message that James is giving us. Yeah, you can get away with it for a while, but eventually it's going to consume you. And what, is, what does he mean when he says you have hoarded up wealth or laid up treasure in the last days? Uh, we don't understand. And, and, you know, James's brother was Jesus. Jesus taught this famous parable about this farmer who got this bumper crop and he stored it all in barns. He built extra barns to store all his wealth because he didn't want any of it to go to waste. He wanted to store it up and he said to himself, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. I've got it made. Now what's wrong with that guy? Jesus in in the parable called him a fool. What was wrong with that? Are we not supposed to take care of the wealth we've been given? No. Again, the book of Proverbs says very clearly uh, to be wise with the resources we've been given. His flaw, flaw was not that he built barns and saved up his grain. His flaw was that he said, now I've got it made. 
we need to understand that our lives are like an instant. And once we're gone, all of that wealth does us no good. I, I heard another preacher put it this way. This is an illustration that I've, I've loved ever since I heard it. If you were alive in the days of the Civil War, and you lived in this part of the country, and you know somehow you had knowledge of what was going to happen, you knew the South wasn't going to win, would you make as much Confederate money as you could? No, of course not. Because you know that once the war is over and our side loses, all that Confederate money is worthless. And that's what we're doing if we place our faith in earthly wealth. We're, we're storing up wealth in the last days. Because whenever we live, we know eventually Christ is coming back. And there's not going to be a separate line for the people who had a certain income. It's not like airplanes, right? Where... You cross that certain threshold of wealth and you get chocolate chip cookies instead of, you know, a two-year-old Nilla wafer or whatever. And you get to sit in a place where you've got lots of space instead of being crammed in like cattle in a stall. No, it's, it's not going to be that way. There's no first class. It, it's, it's, it's every person has to stand before the Lord for himself. All right, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So when he, when he mentions laborers, he's talking about day laborers. This was the thing back then. Uh, Jesus talks about it in one of his parables. Men who didn't have land and... Uh, probably weren't willing to sell themselves into slavery. Their only other outlet was, I'm just going to walk around the village until somebody who has land says, hey, I, I need to help helping with help with my harvesting or I need help with my livestock. Okay, well, good. Then for the next couple of days, I've got some employment. Now, those people were were landless in that country, in that, in that society. To not have land was to not have any security at all. Often they were foreigners, immigrants, uh, or people who for other reason didn't have land, but they lived hand to mouth. It was just a struggle to survive. So if you hired one of these guys and said, yeah, come help reap my grain. And then after he'd done the work, you said to him, good job. I'll call you when I, again when I have another uh, uh, crop to, to harvest, but uh, I can't pay you now. I'll, I'll pay you in a couple of weeks, or I'll pay you uh, when I'm able to sell this grain, or I'll, I'll pay you when this or that happens. You're making them and their children wait to eat. You're dining sumptuously in your own house, and the men who did the work and their children are starving. And, and James's point is, God hears that, and God's on the side of those workers. When he says the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, it sounds like what he said to Abel, I'm sorry, to Cain, back in the book of Genesis, after Cain killed his brother Abel and thought he'd gotten away with it. And God says, where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And what did God say to him? The blood of your brother cries to me from the ground. It's very vivid, isn't it? I can't, I, it's, it's almost as though God's saying, I can't get it out of my mind what you've done to your brother. And that's what he's saying here. When, when people who have a lot or have enough 
abuse those who have not enough. God won't let it go. There will be justice eventually. And you may say, well, I would never do that. Well, do you ever walk out without tipping your waitress? Do you ever run up debt that you have no intention to pay? These are ways, and there are plenty of others, when we defraud someone else, and no one would ever call us a thief, but that's what we are. And God knows, and God sees. The church needs to learn to hear those cries as well. God hears that, and he responds. We as Christians should be that way too. We should get angry when we hear about stuff like this. We should come in and and intervene in these kinds of situations. Verse 5, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. That last sentence is a very gruesome and picturesque phrase. Of course, I've grown up around cattle. I am no cowboy, but my dad raised cattle on the side all his life. And once he retired, that's what he did. And my grandfather was a dairy farmer and then became a rancher. And so I've, I've been around it many, many times where you, you push those cattle into a, into a pen and then you separate the cattle from the calves and the calves go on that trailer and off they go. And that's where your hamburger comes from, right? And this is what he's picturing. He's saying, you, you are just grazing and grazing and you don't even know that the slaughter's come. Oh, you're just carefree, just enjoying what you've, what you were able to buy with your riches, not knowing that judgment was on its way. It's reminiscent of what Amos says in, in the books, when, in I think it's chapter five, when he says, he's speaking to the cows of Bashan. It's one of my favorite chapters because I love to picture the wealthy women of Israel hearing that sermon and going, what did he say? Can he talk to us that way? And he says, yeah, you're, you're fat and happy now. Wait till the Assyrians come down and put hooks in your noses and lead you off into exile. That's what's coming because you've done what you've done. It, it's a picture of us as ignorant animals gorging ourselves while destruction is upon us. And then finally, verse six, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And this this puts us in the position as people with wealth, as we're bullies. And you might say, what do you mean murder? I haven't haven't murdered anybody. But think about it again. In this culture, if you're the landowner and you don't pay the person who works for you or you don't pay them enough, then you're putting his children at risk of dying, of starvation, of malnutrition. You may say, I've never lifted a hand in violence, and yet God considers you guilty of murder in that situation. He holds us responsible. Now, all of this, all of this is uh, very sobering for us, for those of us who basically, if you've got food in your your refrigerator that you probably won't eat tomorrow, but may eat the next week, right? More than enough food to make it a few days. If you've got, you're able to drive yourself. If you've got more than enough clothes to wear, and a house, a roof over your head, and you're not in danger of losing it, then you and I, and and I I fit into those categories and have my whole life, even when Carrie and I thought we were dirt poor. 
And yet God would say, yeah, you're, you're one of the rich. So be careful with what you've done. Really, there are three biblical questions to ask when we think about money. And this is where I'll close. And the first one is, how did I get it? And the second is, what do I do with it? And number three is, what's it doing to me? So how did I get it? Did I do anything dishonest to acquire this money? Did I, did I do anything dishonest to keep somebody else from getting my money? Like not paying somebody what I owe them or cheating in some way, defrauding someone. How did I get what I have? What do I do with it? Am I, am I spending it in ways that glorifies God? Uh, and here's another way to ask that question. In what ways, if any, does my spend, do my spending habits differ from someone who's not a believer at all? And if you want to you talk biblically, that goes further than the tithe. Because I think a lot of us were raised that you know, as soon as you get paid, you, you give 10% to the church. And if you're one of those people, hallelujah, I'm, I'm thankful for you. But this goes further than that. The danger of that is to say, oh, I've done my 10%, then you know, the rest is mine. But giving that 10% is supposed to be a reminder that it's all his. And it should set you up to say, you know, I may not consider myself rich, but I'm doing better than him. And I've got a chance to help him out. So I'm going to do that in the name of the Lord. I'm going to bless that person or bless that cause. And so how did I get it? What do I do with it? And then third, what is it doing to me? Now, any accountant can answer those first two questions for you. They can look over your books. They can tell you. But no accountant, no human being is, can answer this third one. What is your money doing to you? Only you can answer that. And only if you have a humble and a spirit-led heart. What is your money doing to you? Or is it, is it, does it own you or do you own it? Has it captured your heart? You don't have to be a person with a, a six-figure income. You don't have to be a person who lives in a, a fancy house to be someone who is owned by their possessions and their desire for more. So uh, I think we should often ask ourselves or ask the Lord to reveal to us, Lord, what is my heart towards my, my wealth, my possessions, and what you've given me? Help me to glorify you with it. All right. Thank you all. I'm going to pray for us. And, uh, and y'all have a great week. Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. Lord, every one of us could uh, give testimony of how good you've been to us and you've blessed us financially and in every way. Every good thing we have is from you. Lord, I, I thank you for loving us enough to tell us the dangers of putting too much stock into what we own. I pray that we would be honest and would read your word with hearts that are open and would look at our lives with hearts that are led by your spirit, humbly looking for ways that we can be more obedient. Lord, thank you. Again, we live in a very uh, blessed part of the world in a blessed city. So Lord, let us use our blessings wisely to your glory. I pray, Lord, that we would be generous whenever we can. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.